A while back, I listened to a podcast uh, by Krista Tippett. And she is, I think, one of the best interviewers in the world right now. And she was interviewing Eugene Peterson, whom you might know from the Message translation of the Bible. Eugene Peterson has been a pa- was a pastor for a long time, and uh, he spent years um, translating the Hebrew and the Aramaic and the Greek texts into a kind of street-level vernacular in English. And uh, and that became what we know as the message translation of the Bible. And so it made a lot of sense that Krista Tippett asked him, Eugene, do you read the Bible literally or figuratively? Do you read the Bible literally or figuratively? And he chuckled and he responded, I read the Bible literately. This is the House Podcast, and we're helping the next generation discover real life in Jesus Christ. I read the Bible literally. I love that response. I love that response. There are so many different kinds of writings in the Bible. In the Bible, we have poems and proverbs. We have historical narratives and prophecies and genealogies and chronicles. There's laws. There's biographical like uh, sort of sections. There's parables of Jesus. There's letters. There's sermons. There's apocalyptic accounts and dreams. Like, friends, these are different kinds of texts. And we would read them differently. Look, they're all um, contained within what we call the Bible. But within those, those pages that we would call the Bible or the Holy Scriptures, there's 40, over 40 different authors in, in over 60 books, over, over more than 1,000 years, like 1,500 years, putting these texts together. And even if you believe like I do, that God oversees all of this and works concurrently with his humanity, inspiring and breathing life into and through these texts and preserving them through the ages so that what we have today in our translations is a faithful and authoritative accounting of who God is and who we are to him. And we have everything we need in the scriptures that we need to know what it looks like to be fully human and alive and to, and to discover salvation and find it in Jesus Christ. It's absolutely lovely. Even if you believe all of that, we are still talking about a text that has all these different kinds of writing in it over 1,500 years and multiple books by multiple authors. And, and Everybody I know that reads the Bible, that would push forward an idea that we should read the Bible literally, has a really hard time being consistent. So like, for example, um, I I know of some Christian friends who advocate that because in the Deuteronomy, there's a law about men not having long hair. And 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 when I say, you know, why do you you feel like we, we still are bound to those laws in a way? Their argument is, well, I just want to take the Bible seriously and I read it literally and it says men shouldn't have long hair. And yet, I have never heard of a Christian who, even in churches where where women are wearing head coverings still, which is very rare in my experience still too, even where they're trying to take a lot of these things literally as if that thing was written to us today without any sort of contextual nuances or anything like that, and they're just taking it kind of word for word, 
in the very same passage that talks about men not having long hair in Deuteronomy is also the instruction that when you build a house, you should put a parapet on the roof. And I have yet to meet a Christian who has put a parapet on their roof in the United States. Even the most sort of fundamental, conservative, literal Bible-reading Christians, I do not know them to put parapets on their roofs. There's a sense in which none of us really believe that we should read every single thing literally, do we? When, 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 it's, when the, uh, one of the prophets in Scripture talks about the trees on the mountain clapping their hands, I don't know of anybody that actually thinks that, no, I read the Bible literally, so the trees must have had hands. You know, and then the, the, the person who reads it figuratively pushes back and says, well, I think it's a metaphor. And I've never heard that. I can imagine this conversation happening, that the literalist goes, well, you must not trust the Bible because it's God and God can do what God wants. And, and so if he has decided that a trees during this time have hands, who are you to say that he couldn't do it? I've never heard that argument, although you might recognize the shape of that argument with other texts. You see, I've never met a literalist who reads everything literally, and I've never met a figurativist, if that's a word, <laughs> I may use it a couple more times now, I've never heard a figurativist argue that, that everything is figurative without also pushing some scripture to the forefront that they think you should take literally and seriously. For example, love your neighbor, right? Like, so there's a, there's a sense in which it's really hard to be consistent. And I don't hear Eugene Peterson when he suggests to read the Bible literately, I don't hear Eugene sitting in some high place thinking he's above everybody else, and I don't hear him not taking the Bible as seriously as our literalist and figurativist friends. I hear Eugene Peterson saying, I want to take the Bible more seriously. I want to sit under it in humility and trust that it that it is that the words of scripture that their shape that their form that their that the way in which they're given to us all teach us. So here's an example of what this might look like. So many of you might know. Um, actually, this is a good moment to pull out a Bible if you've got one on you. Uh, like if you have access to one, maybe find it. We're looking at the book of Jeremiah just for a second. I just want to give you an example of. Uh, what it means, to, what it looks like to read something literately, okay? So Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah 29, I'm going to look first at verses 11 through 13. So these might be familiar to you. They're very popular verses. They, they find, they, we find these verses tattooed on people's bodies, on the covers of journals, you know, painted on, on sort of artwork in rooms, um, knitted onto pillows, and, you know, it's a very popular verse, and you'll understand why. This language is gorgeous, so listen to this, Jeremiah 29, 11. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Isn't that lovely? I mean, that is like gorgeous, gorgeous language. Who among us would not like to hear the Lord say that to us? So, there's a sense in which, and neither the words figurative or literal are going to be that helpful if you push them to the extreme. But I want to submit to you that there are, there are some ways that we get this kind of off a little bit. On one side of this, typically I would call this like the literalist side, is we don't pay attention to the context. We, don't think, this, we, we think asking questions about when this was written and who wrote it and why they wrote it is, is often an attempt 
were skeptical that this might be an attempt to not take this text as seriously and to not submit to it. And, and we might sort of read that in a quiet time in the morning and highlight it and go, oh my gosh, God knows the plans he has for me and the plans for my welfare and the plans to give me a future and a hope. And when I call upon him and pray to him, he's going to hear me. And when I seek him, I'm going to find him if I seek him with all my heart. And we, we interpret it that way, thinking that what we're supposed to do with the Bible isn't to ask questions about its form and its content and its context. I'm just supposed to take it at its word. But, but listen, friends, this wasn't written to you and to me. How do I know that? Am I just being difficult with this? Well, no, look back at Jeremiah 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, so these words were written to exiles in Babylon under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. They weren't written to me. Now we'll get there, we'll get there. What does this say to me? We'll get there. But what is this? so far, all I know is that this was something said to the exiles, that God knows the plans he has for them. He has plans for their welfare and not for evil, to give them a future and a hope. And when they call upon him and, and come and pray to him, that he will hear them. And when they, when they seek and they find him, they're, 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 when they seek him, they will find them if they seek them with all, all their heart. This is what the prophet Jeremiah told to the exiles 25, 2600 years ago. That's the context that this is. Now, what's going on in this context? Well, if you read the story, just those first 10 verses or so, what you find is God says to these people in exile that what they ought to do is, is recognize that God has sent them into exile. They should build houses and live in their homes. They should plant gardens and eat stuff from their gardens. They should take wives and husbands and have families, and, and they should multiply there. They should be fruitful and multiply in the enemy country under the leadership of an enemy king. And they should, and this is like a um, an intense thing if we can hear it, look out for the welfare of their city. Wait, what? God, we're in enemy lands, and you're telling us to look out for them while we just plant gardens and build houses and live in them and have kids and stuff? That's what God wants them to do. And if you read further in verse 10, listen to this. In verse 10, this is so good. Okay? For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, and then those lovely verses. So get this. What God says to the people in exile is that while you're in exile, first of all, I sent you there. Second, build houses, make families, have gardens. In other words, you're going to be here a while. How long? 70 years. Which means every single one of you that receives this letter is going to die before I do the next thing that I'm going to tell you about. And while you're here, look out for the welfare of this city. Okay? This is what God says. And then he says, after 70 years, I'm going to come back for you and get you, which means not you who's reading it right now, but your descendants, right? Or, or corporately the whole people group. <clears throat> and then he says, for I know the plans I have for you. 
plans to prosper you, plans for your welfare, plans to keep you. You'll seek me and find me. So get this. Here's what that passage really means. It doesn't mean, first and foremost, that me, as a 41-year-old living in the United States right now in 2020, that God knows the plans he has. That's not what it says, that God knows the plans he has for me and that he's planning for my welfare and that he's going to prosper me and keep me, especially in the ways that I want to be prospered and kept. It doesn't mean that. It means that there's exiles 2,500 years ago, 2,600 years ago, that they were waiting for God to save them. And God said, in 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. In the meantime, stay put. And so here's how this shakes down. This is what's interesting to me. If we can kind of get the literal and the figurative stuff together. On one hand, it would be really cool if I saw somebody with like a tattoo, which would, probably wouldn't be a, a Bible literalist, um, who reads some Old Testament laws about tattoos. But if somebody had a tattoo of Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13, and I was like, yo, that's interesting. What, what does that tattoo mean to you? This would be so cool. If they said, I would love this so much, I'd geek out. If they were like, okay, here's why I got the Jeremiah 29, 11 tattoo. Because I thought to myself, God has already given me enough instruction on how to live. He's told me to love my neighbor. He's told me to, to, to outdo others in honor. He's told me to die to myself. He's told me to, like, to, to suffer with him in order that I might join him in glory. And I just love this verse because it reminds me, even if I don't see another distinct and miraculous move of God for 70 years, I have more than enough work to do and he's still gonna come back and get his people. Whew, man, I would love to hear somebody say that because it would mean that they sat under this in a literately that they considered what this passage is really teaching and about. And they didn't say that this tattoo meant that God was going to do this for them. It was a story that tells them that sometimes this is how God does work with his people. And I want to remember that that might be a very real possibility for my life because I know that God has worked this way before. But now you could also, I, I know people very, very closely who this is one of their favorite passages in the Bible. And I think it's totally okay for somebody to, to read this verse and what they find in this verse isn't that God has made a promise for their spouse or for their particular future in a peculiar way that they're wanting, but that they're looking at this and they're going, this is the kind of God that I serve. A God who looks out for the welfare of his people. A God who, who, who brings to bear his promises and, and, and satisfies the desires of his people's hearts. I think that's a totally good way to read this text, but that's not the first way you ought to read it. The first way you read this is by going, what is this text actually saying? And then what can I learn from this about who God is and what he might be like in relationship to me and what he might be calling me to? And so when I first read Jeremiah 29, I don't go, oh, God knows my plans. I go, oh, interesting. This is how God worked with his exiles. What does that say about who God is? And what does that say about what my life might look like in this world under the lordship of Jesus Christ? And then I might come out of that really claiming this verse as something beautiful and like a promise for me in the character of God and in his provision. I think, in other words, I don't think it's, um, I'll say it more positively, it's lovely for somebody to sort of see in these verses the character and the work of God and understand how that is applied to their own life and they can kind of claim those truths for themselves. I think that's lovely. I just also want them to understand 
that when, that when this was said, it was said to a bunch of exiles living in a foreign land and everybody who heard that was told that they wouldn't see the, the sort of move of God at all, that they would die and that their descendants would actually get to do that. And I, I just want us to sit under it a little bit longer to see that kind of reading and to understand that's the way that we look at some of these texts. Because here's what happens when we go awry with this. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness in Matthew chapter four. And, and as Satan tempts him, what does Satan use? He uses scripture. He uses, literally he uses Bible verses to, to do an antichrist thing. Is that possible, friends? to come against the kingdom of God and use Bible verses? Yes. Yes. Is it possible to, to miss the meaning of the text? Yes. Jesus at one point is talking to people and saying, You're, you search the scriptures diligently because you think in them you will find eternal life. But you missed me in it. Or Jesus would walk with, with some of his disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. And he would open the scriptures with them after his resurrection and show them all the things in the scriptures, the Old Testament, that, would, that pointed to him because they didn't, and their eyes were opened later on that night, it said. There's things that we can miss. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount would teach on the law and say things like, you've heard it said, you shouldn't murder. But I tell you that if you harbor anger in your heart, at your brother or your sister and you harbor that and you condemn them in your heart and you call them an idiot in your heart that you're liable for the fires of hell. You see, Jesus is taking scripture and telling them that they've missed the fullness of it. There's this sense, friends, that, that um, when we say something like, well, I have a literal reading of the text or I, have a, I read that text figuratively, there's a sense in which we're imposing upon it a rubric where we're imposing upon the text a particular way to read it. And quite frankly, we often misuse it to further our own ends. Like the slave masters in the antebellum South who, who organized and selected scriptures to promote their own agenda in the name of God. Lord have mercy. We can do this. And when I hear Eugene Peterson say, read the Bible literally, what I'm invited to do is to be more humble than that, is to sit under it and say, Lord, forbid that I use your scriptures to further my own agenda. Let me sit under this and listen a little bit longer to understand what you have said and then to further ask what this might mean for me today, how I might respond to these things. How do I respond to a genealogy? How do I respond to greetings at the end of letters? How do I respond to Old Testament Mosaic law? How do I respond to just a story? How do I respond to a prophetic vision from 2,000 years ago? What do you want me to do with this, Lord? And this requires meditation and study and discussion and you don't have to be alone. You have 2,000 years of the history of God's people in the church who, who, who can help you. We have amazing products in this world right now, like the Bible Project, which might be the greatest Bible resource other than the Bible in the world. It's absolutely phenomenal. We have all sorts of tools at our disposal to help us read the Bible well 
And I would encourage you to sit humbly at its at, at understanding, to literally stand under the scriptures and get curious about them. Not to take it less seriously, but to take it more seriously, friends. By way of, by way of, uh, I want to kind of move to the end of this, but I want to use like an illustration from my own life. Like I want you to imagine this. Like I wrote a letter at one point to my wife and I signed the letter at the end. I love you to the moon and back. Love, Jason. Now let's imagine that that letter uh, somehow gets preserved for the next 2,000 years. And in 2,000 years, there's some like, you know, group of undergraduates uh, who are assigned to sort of do some research paper and they're talking about, you know, um, uh, what life was like in the 21st century or something. And they uncover my letter and they read this and they're like, this guy said, I love you to the moon and back. And he was like, you know, he was like, a, this is like a love letter between he and his wife. So this is like at the street level. This is like normal people stuff. And, 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 you know, through our studies of history, we know that NASA was a thing. We know Tesla was a thing. We know the privatization of space flight was like a thing in, in the 21st century. And so maybe based on the evidence from this letter that this guy Jason wrote to his wife, Anna, like maybe space travel was an incredibly common thing that he apparently like just took a trip to the moon real quick and, and said, I'm going to love you there and back, like whatever. And I could see a literalist writing a paper and saying in the 21st century, uh, you know, sort of average husbands and wives would often travel to the moon. And how do I know that? Because he said, I love you to the moon and back. And a figurativist goes, I think he's just using allegory or, or like metaphorical language. I think he's just, I think the moon's far away. And he's just saying, I love you a lot. I think that's what they're saying. And I can see the literalist going, I don't think you're taking this seriously enough. You know, whatever. Okay, and so they have this argument. And you guys know what the truth is. Like, I didn't actually travel to the moon. I'm just using uh, cheesy romantic language or whatever, okay? But let's say they find a second letter from me. And this letter is signed at the very end. I love you so much that I'll go to Walmart for you. And then the same argument takes place. And this one person says, I, I really think that he was just using Walmart as, a, as figurative language, just like to the moon and back is like a distance language. Walmart must have been far away from their home and he was just, the figurativist is summoning this idea again. He doesn't mean literally he's going to Walmart. And the other person says, no, Walmart is a place. And I think he's saying that he loves her enough that he's going to go there. Can't you read the words? Now listen, in these two letters, each the figurativist and the literalist are both wrong on a different letter, right? They're both right on one letter and wrong on another. I, I, I actually have gone to Walmart because of the love I have for my wife. I have yet to go to the moon and back because of my love for her. So in one of those, I mean literally. In one of those, I mean figuratively. And how is somebody 2,000 years from now going to know the difference? Well, in order for them to know the difference, they're going to have to study the way we use language, they're going to have to look at the context of our culture and ask questions about how common is it that people went to Walmart versus the moon. They're going to have to ask, like, what did, like, a white male who uh, lived in the South in a town called Chattanooga, Tennessee in the 21st century, like, what did he likely think about Walmart? Was that an enjoyable place to go or not? You know, like, they can do some, they can do some historical study and figure this out and come away with it. But the point is, if they just come to these letters with a literal or figurative grid, it's too narrow and they'll miss the point. If they come saying, what does it look like for me to, to look at these letters literately, 
they have a greater chance in their humility to come away with a much, much better understanding of the text. All right? Um, so listen, uh, by way of ending, there's a really popular book that most of my colleagues and, and peers have, have looked at in seminary called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee. And I don't know if this specific sentence is said, but this is the gist of what comes out of the introduction. And they suggest this, that you ought to know what the Bible is saying before you know what the Bible is saying to you. You ought to know what the Bible is saying before you know what the Bible is saying to you. When Paul in Romans 16 says, I commend Phoebe to you, receive her with hospitality, just like you'd receive me. What is Paul saying? Because I'm, I'm not convinced that what I'm supposed to do with Romans 16.1 is look around for any Phoebes in my life and assume that those they're sent by Paul and figure out how to show them hospitality. I think Paul is just extending greetings to people at the end of that passage. You know, or I can look at Paul who, who, who looks at an Old Testament law about not putting a muzzle on your ox when you have it plowing fields and treading grain because that ox should be able to eat while it's working. That Paul reads that and he says, therefore, we should pay our pastors. And you go, wait a minute, what? But that's about oxen. If you take it literally, Paul, it's about animals. It's not even about all animals, it's about oxen. And Paul thinks there's deeper principles that we should pull out. But here's the deal. I don't think Paul is able to pull out the application of an Old Testament law until he understands the Old Testament law first. What, why does God not want us to put a muzzle on an ox? Is he, is he just like arbitrary? Does God care about animals? Does he, does he think there's a lesson for us to see in this? That when, he, when we put an animal into a field and till it, to till it, that it ought to be able to live off of that stuff that it's working in and it ought to experience some joy and not be overly laborious in its work or something. Is there a sense in which we go, oh, interesting, God has put his people into a garden too and he doesn't want to put a muzzle on us either. And he wants us to be able to live off the fruit of the stuff that he does. And what does this have to do with anybody who works? Is there something about uh, that, that managers of businesses can learn from, like if I ran a Chick-fil-A, would I, does this Old Testament law inspire me to think about whether or not my employees get to eat for free while they work? I think maybe, I'm not sure. I mean, there's not a law about Chick-fil-A in this stuff. You know, I don't know if Chick-fil-A is a safe example for this audience, but you know what I'm saying. Like, Paul is able to sort of unfold the implications of these laws by spending more time understanding what the law was getting at in the first place. And friends, I submit that to you. What would it look like for you to know what this is saying before you know what it's saying to you? And just resist the temptation to so quickly make the Bible fit your grid. This is literal, this is figurative. This I'm, I'm opening the text because I wanna know if I'm gonna get married, because I'm confused about creation and evolution, because I, you know, election, free will, whatever your deal is. Like, as you open up the text, just be humble enough to admit that you're tempted to make it say what you want it to say. This keeps happening in history. And what would it look like for you to sit as a student under it just a little bit longer, meditate on it, listen to it literately, 
There's all sorts of brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus who've gone before you to do a lot of muscle lifting here, and they've given you tons of access to them all over the internet. You're welcome to send me a message or reach out to me, and I'd be happy to introduce you to a ton of different people's thoughts on different passages of Scripture if you're curious. Just sit under it a little bit longer and know what it's saying before you know what it's saying to you. I cannot commend this to you highly enough. The Bible is a rich and fruitful text. And God has given us all that we need for salvation and to live a a life devoted to the Lord and holy and upright in this life through these scriptures. But given how much we twist them to our own ends, given how often they've been used for abusive purposes, given that Satan himself even uses this to tempt Jesus, it ought to give us pause for just a minute and to be more humble as we approach the text and to say, Lord, I want to take your Bible more seriously, not less seriously. I want to come under the the reign and the rule of Jesus in your kingdom and not use your scripture to, to promote my own kingdom. So let me understand what this text is saying before I walk away from here understanding what it's saying to me. Send your spirit, help us please, Lord. May your word be lifted up in our hearts and in our minds. May it capture our imaginations and shape us by the power of your spirit into being the kind of people who look like Jesus in this world, who love you and love others with our very lives. Amen, amen, and amen. Friends, I hope that was helpful. If you liked it, uh, please consider sharing it with some friends and subscribe or rate it on your favorite podcast providers so others can find it. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. God bless you.